This episode of Awards Chatter is brought to you by Universal Television, presenting Girls 5 Eva. Girls 5 Eva follows a one-hit wonder 90s girl group who attempts a comeback while hilariously navigating family and relationships, plus the joys and pains of middle age. The show stars Sarah Bareilles, Renee Elise Goldsbury, Paula Pell, and Busy Phillips. Don't miss the series critics call The Funniest Show on Television. Girls 5 Eva is now streaming on Netflix and is for your Emmy consideration for Outstanding Comedy Series and all other eligible categories. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to the 414th episode of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporter's Awards podcast. I'm Scott Feinberg, the host, and also a trustee professor at Chapman University's Dodge College of Film and Media Arts. And this is a special live episode being recorded at Chapman's Felino Theater in Orange, California, in front of an audience of my students and other members of the community of this great film school. Today, we are honored to be joined by a brilliant actor who made his name in the new Hollywood of the 1960s and 1970s in films like Mean Streets and Taxi Driver, who was a pivotal figure in the indie boom of the 1980s and 1990s in films like Reservoir Dogs, The Piano, and Pulp Fiction, and who continues to do great work well into the 21st century. A product of the celebrated actor studio with which he has remained associated ever since, he has worked with many of the finest filmmakers of his time, often in the ultimate compliment to an actor more than once. Indeed, six times with Martin Scorsese, three times with James Toback, twice with Ridley Scott, Alan Rudolph, Jane Campion, Abel Ferrara, Wes Anderson, and of course, Quentin Tarantino, and the list goes on. Now, at the age of 82, he is winning raves for his portrayal of Meyer Lansky in Aton Rockaway's Lansky, which Vertical Entertainment released on June 25th, and which is now available for streaming. Would you please join me in welcoming to Chapman University, the great Harvey Keitel. Can I say something before we get started? Please, do whatever you'd like. Okay. Before I got thrown out of high school, (laughs) um, I left with one word, one line of wisdom that I never forgot from my English teacher. And I got thrown out kind of early, by the way, (laughs) who said, the only stupid question is the one not asked. Now we can start. Absolutely. Thank you. So on this podcast, we always begin right at the beginning. If you would not mind sharing with our class, where were you born and raised and what did your folks do for a living? Well, I I was born and raised in Brooklyn. Mm -hmm. My folks were immigrants from Romania and Poland. So I'm the child of immigrants. And my father worked at a sewing machine in a factory all of his life. And my mother worked in luncheonettes here and there. And you were you were a presence in those diners as well, right? I I made more at that time. We called them malteds. 
milkshakes <laughs> that you can imagine, and egg creams, <laughs> cherry cokes, <laughs> hamburgers. <laughs> it's a good good skills. Um, good skills. <laughs> so my understanding, though, is that when you were not in the diner or wherever else that your parents might have been, you were running with a crowd that maybe got a little bit, got into a little bit of trouble now and then. And and then yet, as as you kind of referenced, you did not finish high school the traditional way. You went off at 17 to the Marines. Why? How do we reconcile a kid who's running around getting in trouble with choosing to go into the Marines? Well, first of all, the idea was never to get caught. So, um, I got into the Marines with a clean record. <laughs> that's, the, that's some acting right there, right? <laughs> oh, I robbed a pigeon coop here and there, you know, nothing, nothing major. Um, I couldn't get a gun. It's hard. <laughs> I was uh, running around with some great friends. I, I, I made up this quote for myself. I'm using it for the first time now. I said, looking back, that I was, my great friend stopped me from the suicide of my childhood. I had great friends. A matter of fact, I joined the Marines with two of them. Oh, okay, together. And they yeah. were never caught either, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think you knew that you needed it? That discipline of, of the Marines? No, no, no. Uh, we were looking for an adventure. We had mistakenly got thrown out of school together. <laughs> that was the big mistake, allowing that to happen. That was the big, biggest lesson of my life, maybe. But nevertheless, we didn't have the kind of, come from the kind of families that knew the importance of an education and where that, uh, uh, that would take you. And that if you didn't have one, you wouldn't wind up in a place that you were necessarily proud of yourself. So to join the Marines, we were looking for a hero's journey. Mm -hmm. We wanted to feel like somebody. And uh, me and my two, two buddies, nicknames Moose and Pittsburgh. <laughs> moose because he looked like a moose. And Pittsburgh because in that year, Pittsburgh Pirates baseball team was in last place always. And, and Carl came last in everything, so <laughs> that's how he learned, earned his uh, nickname. So anyway, we were going to join the Navy. We, uh, we had, I had got thrown out of school. I didn't want to leave, but I violated some rule, playing hooky too much, and they said it was a, a law that so many days, because I had this great English teacher that stood up for me. He didn't want me kicked out, but he didn't have the power. So um, uh, we were going to join the Navy. And uh, one day we go back to the pool room where we hung out from when we were 16 years old on. And one of the older guys, well, we were 16, just turning 17. We were waiting for the third of us to turn 17 because you had to be 17 to get in with your parents uh, signing for you. And... There was standing in front of us a guy named Joe Bradowski. And he was just the way his name sounds. Toughest MF <laughs> in the neighborhood. And um, we hadn't seen him since he had joined the Marines. You know, he hung out with the older guys. That were like a year or two older. And there's Joe standing there in his, you know, summer tropical uniform. He was a Marine. 
And he's standing there like, just, just standing like almost at attention by the pool tables. In those days, women were not allowed in the pool room, by the way. And uh, so we went up to Joe and said, Joe, how you doing, Joe? And Joe, he was just standing there like, you know, like he didn't move. We never saw Joe like that. <laughs> and he was a strong, tough guy. And he said, fine. And he didn't smile, he didn't do anything, just staring straight ahead. So uh, he's not talking to us, really. And so we told, we told him, we said, Joe, we're going to join the Navy. How do you feel about the Navy? And he never changed his stare, just looking straight ahead, said, the Navy, they're fine if you want to be one of our little sisters. <laughs> <laughs> so me, Moose, and Pittsburgh looked at each other like, and we joined the Marines the next day. <laughs> and that's exactly how it happened. That's amazing. And I told that story in Washington once. I was, high, I was invited to be guest of honor at the Marine Corps birthday there. And the um, Secretary of the Navy was present at the table I was sitting at. And I told that story. Now, this is Secretary of the Navy. He said, if I was in the pool room that day and met Joe Badowski, I would have joined the Marines also. <laughs> <laughs> and the Marines, it seems like you, I think you were there three years uh, at a very formative time. And you have said that there was one guy in particular, I guess he's probably only a year or two older than you, but at that time, it seems like like a big difference who had, who had been there before you, who kind of had something, to, uh, words of wisdom that you you've kept with you since then, right? Was something about the dark. You go to the Marines, it's uh, Paris Island. Out here, it's uh, San Diego. We don't consider them Marines. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, after three and a half months there, you go to uh, advanced combat training. At least that's the way it was when I was in long time ago. <laughs> and um, one night we were out in the field and there were a lot of us out in the field, you know, maybe 50 people, 75 people. And it was pitch black. You, you couldn't see your hand in front of your face. This was night combat course. And um, I was scared to death. And I didn't want anyone to see that I was scared. I figured no one else was scared but me. Uh, we're all out there in combat gear, you know, and... Uh, all you could see was the moon. It was a bright moon. Why was it dark where we were? I don't know, but there was a lot of foliage there and whatnot. And all of a sudden, a voice rings out. You're all afraid of the dark. And our faces turn, and in the distance, further back than the end of this building, there was a shape standing on the platform, and he was silhouetted by the moon. And so our attention went there, and I'm thinking... How the hell did he know I was scared? And he said, we're all afraid of the dark because we don't know the dark, but we're going to teach you how to live in the darkness so that you'll no longer be afraid of it. A lesson I never forgot, and I'm still working on it. <laughs> <laughs> you, after your three years, come back to Brooklyn, I believe, and uh, and figuring out what you want to do with your life. And and in fact, I believe like quite a few actors, interestingly enough, you have said you had a bit of a stutter. 
And maybe that that initially made you not interested in being in a position where you would have to speak very much. So, <laughs> right. So how did you I, wind I, up? I never thought about it that way. Well, you did, right? Wind up in a, a as a stenographer, right? Yeah. For a number of years before yeah. acting. Yeah. But I studied when I was very young. Okay. You know, in Brooklyn, I, was, I had a bad stutter. You, you, you'll see me stuttering a bit now, too. Uh, and, um, well, I sold shoes for a while. And then I... Uh, Became a court stenographer, like Scott was saying. I didn't have to speak, but my study wasn't very bad then. I just hadn't had that education that I longed for by that time, by the way. I had gone on, on the base to a, a college that came to the Marine Corps base in North Carolina. I had traveled around a bit before that. I was in Lebanon when Marines and paratroops went in 1958, but there was no war. They were afraid of me. <laughs> um, the, uh, there was a college on the, uh, on the East Coast that offered courses on the base, and I took a psychology course there. And um, <laughs> I, I was the only one from the infantry. Uh, North Carolina is where the 2nd Marine Corps Division is stationed. And in this class, uh, there were all young Marines from... Base intelligence, you know, the base hierarchy, this and that. I was the only infantryman in the class, which meant sometimes when there was a class, it was like once or twice a week in, in psychology. And uh, I would come from the field. So I came in there with a rifle and ammunition in my belt, you know, and everyone else was dressed neat with a tie and everything. So that's where I had my first um, introduction to what school might be like mm -hmm. was in that class. Mm -hmm. And so then um, when I cut to the chase and I was court sonographer in New York City, I was working with this very handsome, lovely Greek guy for the city of New York. Uh, it was like out of a Kafka novel, you know, <laughs> taking cases for people who tripped over the sidewalk, fell in the cellar, you know, <laughs> and was suing the city. And he said to me one day, Harvey, you want to go and see about acting lessons? I never thought about it. I said, okay. I mean, I was a court sonographer. I wasn't, uh, it's, a, it's a good, healthy job for people. But it wasn't for me after three years in the Marines and all that. But no education. I couldn't go very far. There was no place to go. So I began to miss that education. I gave up all those years ago a, a great deal. And... Um, most of the girls who were smart wanted to go out with college guys. <laughs> I was good looking, but not that good looking. <laughs> and um, so we go up to uh, this place where he had seen somebody was offering acting lessons in Manhattan. The, the Greek's name was Bill, Billy. Wonderful guy. Haven't seen since. And he left and I stayed. We walked into this building on 23rd Street and 5th Avenue where it meets Broadway. None of you will know what it's like, I guess. But the building was like a slum, but it was a, the architecture was beautiful. But it was an old building, unkept. And we walked in, you know, and um, uh, I had been a court sonographer for years, you know. And um, the staircase was actually tilted. You had to walk up it like that way. <laughs> and, of course, the acting teacher was on the, the top floor. So we walk in, and there's this big studio, you know, not this big, but, you know, it's part of it. Empty, and this 
fellow sitting behind a desk like you are now, and it's kind of darkish there. So my friend leaves, I stay. And this, this gentleman's name was Anthony Menino. He was a great teacher. I never got a chance to thank him for all he did for me because he died before I became the actor I became. But he taught me a great deal. And the very first lesson he taught me, I, I cherish to this day. And it was this. He said to me, you see that coat hanger over there? Okay, go on. I want you to go over there and count all those hangers and come back and tell me how many there are. And I looked at the coat hanger and the thing, and there were a hell lot of hangers on it, uh, you know, like maybe 50, 60. I said, okay. You know, I got my machine for the court stenography in my hand uh, in, in the box. I go over there, and I go one, two, three. I turn around and come back. I said, okay. He said, how many were there? I said, uh, 33. He said, did you count every one of them? I said, uh, no. <laughs> he said, well, go back and count every single one of them because acting is doing things truthfully with a purpose. And that still sticks in my head every time I work. Well, and you've, you've over the course of those years in particular, those early years as you were getting into acting, worked with people who today, people study the people who you studied from. I mean, we're talking about uh, Stella Adler, Lee Strasberg. Lee Strasberg, by the way, played a version of Meyer Lansky in The Godfather Part Two. He was excellent. He was excellent. But these folks, particularly at the actor studio, which you've been associated with ever since, they are spoken of in the, you know, glowing terms. They changed the way people's uh, actors looked at their profession. And I wonder if you can explain, particularly, uh, you know, the method is often comes up as, as something they taught, but just what for you, if you could, you know, pr pretend you're talking to people who have no idea what the actor studio or the method is about, even though I think we, we have a little bit, um, what was the great value of your time with the Stella Adlers and Lee Strasbergs and people at the actor studio? I knew a question like this would come up. <laughs> and it's almost the most difficult thing to answer, and I probably can't answer it in terms that would satisfy you completely. Uh, first of all, there was people like Harold Klurman and Aliyah Kazan and um, other greats that were teachers there who formed the uh, group theater. They were the ones that changed the way theater was done in America, the group theater. People like Boleslavsky from Russia taught there, and um, and uh, the Stella Adlers and Lee Strasbergs had studied with uh, um, Stanislavsky in Russia. So it was a very healthy, intelligent group of people that began the group theater, which evolved into the actor studio. Stella Adler went her own way. She and her brother, Luther Adler, who was a great actor. And these were just super talents who had learned the method that Stanislavski and people like him and Bakhtangov and all those Russian names I can't pronounce <laughs> taught in Russia. And they were just powerful figures. I mean, when they got up on the stage to say a word, it was like counting the hangers. They counted every one. 
Um, and you knew it from the behavior. The actor studio was made up of people like that. And Harvey, you're talking about they, they came out of the, these were basically one degree removed from Stanislavski. Now they're passing that on to a lot of other talented young actors like yourself and people, other people who would have come through there, right? Brando and James Brando Dean. went and, to Stella Adler. Right. Yeah. Uh, a lot, and a whole, De Niro was it Stella Niro, Adler. It totally changed the way Americans approach acting, right? A whole generation. Yeah. And it's, in terms of the, the core of what Stanislavski is about, which they're trying to pass on, it's instead of, you know, I think if you people go and watch a silent movie, right, there's a very declamatory people stiff. They, you know, it's, it's like theater acting in, in not in theater acting before that was changed. How would you describe the way that the Stanislavski method as it got passed down changed the way people acted? Well, it began the, just the way you did it. <laughs> um, but of course, they had had their greats back in the twenties yep. and all that. Well, uh, acting is doing things truthfully with a purpose. Truthfully, what does that mean to you? Uh, I'm not looking for an answer because I'm sure you're all asking yourselves that question. And and I did, and my colleagues did, like De Niro and Pacino and um, others like that. We there at the studio at the same time. As a matter of fact, I met Robert De Niro there. And Al Pacino, but De Niro and I became close friends. Mm -hmm. And uh, they wouldn't have a false moment on the stage. They wouldn't allow it. They wanted you to create a character that was human and humane. No matter what the profession. Killer, king, or chef. And um, the struggle was to learn the technique for bringing that to the stage. Now, have you read uh, people like Kazan, Stanislavski, and Stella Adler, any of you? Scorsese and whatnot? Well, then you know what I'm talking about. But not a lot of hands went up. And you are all filmmakers, I mean, studying film. Well, I got to recommend that you do a little reading, mm -hmm. you know, of... Uh, of um, the people I'm naming, like uh, Kazan. And even an actor prepared, Stanislavski's, right? I mean, that's where they got their yes. stuff from. Stanislavski wrote about four or five books. Well, well, he was the father of it all. So, you know, there's obviously ways people approach, you hear people talk about, well, I do it from the inside out or the outside in, or I have to live the, you know, you hear about method people that don't, you know, if you're playing a, a uh, homeless guy, they go and live on the streets for what, what is at the root of that? It's just that you have to, is it relating to an experience that you've had in your own life or is it having to simulate the character that you're playing? How, how would you describe the method? Well, I would describe it that in the beginning, I, I, I didn't learn it very well. And I always thought it had to be something I did, <laughs> you know, and, uh, it, that can get very uncomfortable. <laughs> depending on the character that you're playing. It's about finding that character you're playing in yourself. What would make you do what that character does? What would have to take place within your psyche and your body, the currents going through you, that would make you do what this character is doing? One example, and this might be a bit abstract, but anyway, I was watching an actor do a checkup play the seagull. There, there was the, the scene where um, 
where he commits suicide. And I wasn't a member of the studio yet. I was, I was an observer because I was working in the playwrights unit with some playwright. Too long a story. And um, he commits suicide in the scene. And boy, I'm getting the chills now. And I said, my God, I couldn't do that. I said, I, I could not play that part. I don't know how to do that. So the method is to find your way, but how far would you have to go to take your own life? Mm -hmm. What would you have to go through? And it's that exploration that brings you into the search for yourself and the character to become one. And that's, by the way, I'll jump around a little bit, the value of improvisation. I'm sure you will do that, don't you? Mm -hmm. Okay. That helped me a great deal. Once I understood fully that, well, everybody who taught the method and studied the method knows improvisation. And um, that's something you do without using the words of the play itself, but you take the action you think belongs in that part of the play, and you use your own words. And by using your own words, you bring the character closer to yourself. You have to find how you get to the words, without the words, your own words. So it's that sort of a journey. It's like preparing to climb a mountain. You know, you go, you get your ice pick, you get your shoes, your thermals, whatever. Whatever you think is going to help you get up that, that, that mountain. I want to transition. It's all related because here it was right in the, in the thick of you learning this stuff for the first time that you established the two, correct me if you disagree, but it seems to me the two most important creative relationships of your life where in 1965, because of opening up the newspaper, you, I'll let you explain, you wind up meeting a young NYU student named Martin Scorsese, who's never made a film before at that point. And not long after that, or right around there, this fellow actor, studio student, Robert De Niro. And that was years later. Years later. Okay. So let's... He was still very young and I was too, <laughs> but it was years later. But so let's, you know, basically from this uh, responding to an ad, right, in the newspaper from a NYU student who needs to cast his film, who's that knocking at my door? That's the beginning of you and Scorsese. It's kind of, you have to feel like that's fate. Did you, did you guys did. immediately did. hit it off? Yeah. You want to hear how I met Marty? Please. Okay. I love the story. Please. <laughs> okay. So I was, I was uh, uh, still a court sonographer, but I had left the courts because I wanted to be free to study acting. So I used to follow the trades to see where I can get some experience in, not in a non-paying job off, off Broadway, you know, some dusty place or something. So Marty's, Marty put an ad in the uh, show business newspaper where all the actors go to find auditions they go to. I didn't have an equity card or anything, so I couldn't get in anywhere. So um, he had auditions at NYU. First auditions, I don't know, maybe 50 actors showed up for the, uh, for the parts. And I was surprised so many actors were out of work, you know, only to find out later on that very few actors do work. Right. <laughs> um, and, uh, and so uh, uh, 
And I went through, I think, three auditions and narrowed it down to like three people for that part. And so I go down to NYU that night. It's closed that night, but Marty had, you know, the keys to the kingdom. And um, for the final audition, like three guys. So uh, I get there and I see two other guys there and uh, a couple of students that were Marty's assistants. School's empty. There is a ball barn in the hallway, like here or there. I go in, guy guides me to a seat, and I sit down. He says, sit over there, you know, I sit down. And I'm waiting. Finally, a guy comes up and says, you see that door down there, down the hallway, where the light is emanating? I said, yeah. He said, go in that room and wait there. Monty's not around anywhere. No, no. I go in the room, and there's a guy sitting in a chair behind a desk. Again, like you are there. <laughs> and I walk in. He says, sit the fuck down. I said, excuse me, but who are you? He said, uh, sit the fuck down. I said, go fuck yourself, motherfucker. <laughs> and I go, I go, I go at him. He gets up yeah. to go with me. And from the darkness, where well, you can't see up there, really, a voice starts to shout, Harvey, no, no, stop, stop. It's an audition. <laughs> <laughs> so Marty comes running down the stairs. Me and the guy are about to start hitting each other. I said, Marty. When you're doing an improvisation, it's a good idea to let the actor know. <laughs> good stuff. <laughs> when, whenever people talk about Scorsese being a genius, I love telling that story. Yeah, no, it's <laughs> hilarious. So you guys do that student film, Who's That Knocking at My Door, comes, which is people see in 67. And then you find out a little bit afterwards he's going to be doing his, I guess, you know, higher higher profile feature mean streets right and i want to just we're gonna we're gonna i'm gonna try to in a, a as time efficiently as possible you've got so many of these notable ones but let's talk about just the significance of these along the way so with mean streets 1973 eventually comes out you have, you're the one who in between meeting him and then meeting de niro you suggest de niro for the other role in Mean Streets, right? Uh, no, no. Marty wanted him. But you had introduced them? I saw Robert work at the actor's studio. He wasn't a member. Uh, he was an observer also. Marty said, uh, uh, Harvey, I'd like Robert De Niro to do the part. I said, oh, he's great. He, sure. He said, but he doesn't want to do it. So I went to him. I didn't know him. I had just met Robert on the streets in front of the actor's studio uh, like a year before that, I walk, was walking up to the studio. He was standing with an actress from the studio. The actress said, Harvey, this is Robert, Robert, Harvey. He went, mm -hmm. and I went, mm -hmm. <laughs> and then he grinned, and I grinned. Mm -hmm. Not a lot of talking. And then it turned to a, a <laughs> smile, you know, like this. <laughs> And we both started laughing. Right. <laughs> we never said a word to each other. <laughs> and they opened the doors to the studio. We went in, and I met Robert a year later. That's good. <laughs> yeah, really. Marty had given me the part I played in the movie. But first, gave it to me. Then, a month or two later, he took it away from me. <laughs> 
he wanted John Voight to play it. He wanted or he was being pressured to by the financiers? No, he wanted he John wanted Voight. All right. And pressured or not, John was a great right, actor. Right, right. And, uh, and he was a big star. I was a court stenographer. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's a hard, hard uphill climb. Right. I said, well, okay, well, what can I say, you know? And John Voight did a smart thing. He told Marty, don't use me because people's eyes are going to be on me and not on your movie. So John, like a mensch, gave up the part, you know? So the part came back to me. Um, and then about a month after that, Marty comes to me, uh, Harvey, I, you know, I want, uh, I'm not going to name names here now. I want this other actor to play the part. And he took the part away from me again. <laughs> and the gods must have been with me because that person got a Broadway play written by one of the great playwrights of our time. He could not say no right. to doing a fucking student film. <laughs> so guess who got to play the part? <laughs> and this is just just uh, for listeners or anybody else, uh, Charlie, small time hood in Little Italy, tries to remove himself from the bad influences around him while also helping his friend Johnny Boy, who De Niro does end up playing. And I want to just ask you, the, the movie begins with you doing the voiceover, quote, you don't make up for your sins in church, you do it in the streets, you do it at home, all the rest is BS and you know it, close quote. Was it your understanding that, I, I know that one of the things that you and Scorsese have always, or certainly then connected about was religion and God and interest in theology. Was it your understanding for Mean Streets that you were playing Scorsese, basically, a guy riddled with guilt? Not not literally, Scorsese's not beating people up or other stuff, but I mean... It, no. Yeah. But I knew Scorsese had been through similar events like you're speaking about, like this Jewish kid mm -hmm. went through in Brooklyn. Right. So uh, it, it was really the same thing, except call one Christianity, call the other one Ju Judaism, yeah. you know, Judaism. And would you have ever guessed in the making of that movie that you were a part of something that was people would be talking about 48 years later? I had a hint. You did? What was the what was the kind of indicator for you? Well, I was still working as a court reporter because I had to make money, you know. Mm -hmm. So we we, uh, we we had shot. I'm going back. We had shot. Uh, who's that knocking at my door on right. weekends? So Marty asked me if I wanted to see a scene he put together from the dailies. Mm -hmm. I said, sure. So I go down to NYU, go to the screening room, screen goes up, and there's the scene of uh, Charlie in church. And there's no dialogue in it, but he's in church, this beautiful scene, where he's looking at all the icons of you know, Mary and Jesus and all the saints walking around the church because he's trying to understand religion and God and who he is. And, and the screen goes up, and uh, I'm looking at it. I say to myself, wow, it's so beautiful. And all of a sudden, boom, who's that knocking at my door? Goes on a voiceover, loud, all night long and the night before, boom, 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 bang, bang, bang. Who's making that awful sound? Something like that is the words. I'm getting the chills now again. And I got the chills then. And I said, my God, i never seen anything like that in my life. Just the way it was all put together. And that's when I knew this guy, somebody special. Right. So Mean Streets was 73. 
74 is Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore, which you terrorize Ellen Burstyn, who then wins an Oscar for that part. But it was uh, two in two years and then three in four well, you know, years. You, you, you directors, actors, writers, you know, it's, 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 it's really a tougher job than Scott and I talking up here, <laughs> you know. For instance, Marty wants me to play that part in, in Alice Doesn't Live Here mm -hmm. Anymore. Okay, got the Hollywood and everything. And um, uh, uh, Marty said to me, you're going to make $10,000. I said, wow, $10,000. Jesus, <laughs> never made that in my life, you know, in uh, in like one week. Um, and then it seems people like to take things away from me. The studio, <laughs> the studio didn't want me in the part. And M Marty insisted on me playing the part. But they were going to give me $3,000. Oh, jeez. So, you know, it's not an easy climb for anybody. Okay. Well, no, just, uh, just to the thing that's amazing though, is there's clearly in that period, the, the loyalty and trust building between you and Scorsese, because 74 is Alice doesn't live here anymore. 76 is taxi driver. And just if anyone has been living under a rock, you are sport, the East village pimp who's out there with Jodie Foster among others. And I, want to ask you though correct is this i fact, wrote the song for that dance really yeah no well that's a, that's amazing i what i was going to ask you was did you specifically ask for that relatively smaller part rather than a, a larger part i did why was that because when i lived in hell's kitchen in new york at the time i used to see the pimps along 10th avenue in the 40s and uh they fascinated me. I saw all, all the pimps, you know, and, and and the girls. And the part Marty wanted me to play was the uh, campaign uh, worker. So that didn't interest me much. And the pimp had only about five lines, mm -hmm. but it fascinated me because I used to see all the pimps, you know. So and Marty said, the, uh, the pimp, he has five lines. I said, Marty, let me play the pimp. And the pimp was described as an Italian guy stands in the doorway. That was it. Were you able to improvise or add, like, how did that work? I improvised the whole scene. The whole thing. Yeah. And the costume, everything. And part of the material that you drew from in, in improvising. Was, and the song. And the song, yeah. <laughs> part of what you drew from, though, was that you had actually solicited is the wrong word, but so, sought out a a real pimp to shadow the guy, right? How, and how, I, I, I heard that got a little touchy. One, one time it did. <laughs> <laughs> touchy again, the wrong word, but it's... <laughs> twice, no, 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 twice actually. Um, well, I didn't know what a pimp, you know, did really. So uh, I, uh, I was doing a play at the time. I was doing uh, Death of a Salesman with George E. Scott. And, um, and there were always uh, girls of the night up on Broadway, you know, in, in that area. So the first woman I approached, and, and my name was outside on the billboard with George Scott and uh, the other, other people. So I walked up to her when I was coming to uh, the uh, performance, and I said, excuse me, but do you mind if I talk to you? I was trying to be as polite as I could be. I said, um, I'm doing a movie, blah, 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 blah. My name is Harvey Keitel. That's me. I'm in this play. That's my name on the card there. And I kept talking and talking because I wanted her to introduce me to a pimp. And so I said, would you, you know, uh, introduce me to to a pimp? And all that time she had not said a word. 
and she looked at me with the look of contempt that I'll never forget <laughs> and said, nobody's going to talk to you. <laughs> and I said, okay, okay. And you got away. <laughs> and I, yeah. But then I finally met a guy who was, who said he was a pimp. I didn't know how you could be a former pimp. <laughs> <laughs> and I took him to the actor's studio. We went to the basement, to one of the rehearsal rooms, and uh, and we worked for about two weeks. And, and uh, I played the girl, he played the pimp, and then we switched it around. I played the pimp, he played the girl. And he taught me the motions and the thoughts of a pimp. Was there another pimp at some point who you tried to tape record? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I'm smarter than that. <laughs> well, yes, it's true. He caught me. It was that guy. Same guy? Uh, yeah, he, yeah, he was going to take me to meet some other pimps. And uh, I was still living in Hell's Kitchen at the time. So I had the bright idea because I wanted to have authenticity in part, get as many voices down as I could have raised down. I wired myself. It took me hours to tape my, the wire in my leg and the chest, the hair, and, and the, mic, the, mic, the microphone. I, I could have strangled myself. And so when he came up to my place, which was across the street from the actor's studio at the time, I said to him, listen, if you, if you don't mind, I wired myself. He said, what? <laughs> Again, that contemptuous look. He said, are you crazy? You want to get us killed? So I unwound all the tape. <laughs> <laughs> well, whatever the the whatever you drew on, it was uh, very memorable. So, an interesting thing that I think people note about you and your career is that you have been there at the beginning with a lot of directors who went on to great careers, but also, you know, it's it takes a leap of faith for maybe it's one thing when you're when you're there at the beginning with Scorsese. You guys are both starting out. But let's just note that beyond Scorsese, you were in the first feature of Ridley Scott, The Duelist, in 1977. You were in the first feature directed by Paul Schrader, Blue Collar, 1978. First by James Toback, also in 78, Fingers. And then we'll obviously come to some of the more recent folks when we when we get to Tarantino, etc. Do you have some reason that you've Worked so often with a first-time filmmaker, or is that just the way it's worked It's something out? all of you writers, directors, actors, whatever, are going to have to tap into within yourselves. And that's instinct. That's your own aesthetic force. And um, with some of the people you named, uh, that happened. Like with Quentin's script, Marty's script, and... Uh, um, even Jane Campion's, although it wasn't her first, it was her first, you know. It's something you acquire by the way you live your lives and the books you read and whom you hang out with and that you don't join the Marines at 17. Right. Well, instinct can also not work out though, right? I mean, just not the, I guess you, in one example where it may have gone awry, what happened with Apocalypse Now? You were originally Captain Willard, the the man ultimately played by Martin Sheen in, in Coppola's film. But it sounds like, you, and let's just say, you go to the Philippines, you shoot for a week, but something happened. And there's divert, there, there, there have been other versions of the story. I want the Harvey Keitel version. Oh, you know you're going to get the true story from that. <laughs> 
But well, he was looking for that part to cast it on the East Coast, West Coast, all over. Everybody, the auditions, hundreds of actors. So let me ask you a question, if please, I might. Please. Why do you think he cast me? Probably your Marine service, right? That he knew that to begin with. That alone, out of all the hundreds of actors he auditioned. He liked your work. Yeah. Remember that. <laughs> he didn't know enough. There was nobody from the military on the set when I joined the cast. I was the only person that was ever in the military on that set. Nobody. Nobody on the crew, the cast, anybody. And so when I say he didn't know enough, I'm speaking on a, a certain plane. And I mean this plane is important. I'll even give you maybe the best example of it I can. And not many people know this, but let me try it now. My wife is there. I don't know if she's objecting yet or not. <laughs> but if something flies through the air, everybody duck. <laughs> um, I just, this is just an example of something. Sure. Because um, I, I have no... I have no axe to grind with, uh, yeah. with, uh, with, with Francis. He saw it that way, and that's the way he saw it. But I want to give you this little example. Have you ever read Heart of Darkness? Mm -hmm. You know how the story ends? This guy knows. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know if the story's going to mean anything to anybody who hasn't read it, but let me say a few people have read it. The last, very last lines in the book... Um, the character of, uh, that I was supposed to play uh, goes home from Vietnam and goes to visit uh, the part that Brando plays his wife. And his wife, I get the chills now from it still. This is the book written by um, a comrade. No greater writer than a comrade. And his wife asks the character I was to play, what were his last words? of her husband who died in Vietnam. And the character says to her, they were of you, ma'am. He lied to her. His last words were the horror, the horror. So Francis and I were improvising one night. He was at the typewriter. And he asked me, I wish he was here now, so you can, you, you can ask him. Um, and he, saw, he said, Harvey, how can we end the movie? I'm saying this for your education as actor, directors, writers. I said, how? There's no other way to end it but the way Conrad fucking ended it. <laughs> the fucking wasn't there then. Right, right, right. You can't end it any other way. He must go home. Mm -hmm. He didn't use it. Uh, it ended with the horror of the horror, right? So that, okay, well, there, there are creative differences that happen. Well, I'm saying that yeah. what you have to deal with are yourselves, where you mm -hmm. come from, what you think is best. Be honest and be as authentic as you can to your work. And nobody is better or knows more than you. Unless you quit high school at 16. <laughs> <laughs> I made up for it. Once I got to New York, by the way, and got into acting class and met these wonderful actors I met and actresses. Boy, did the world open up for me. I realized how uneducated I was. Because um, most of the people in the class, not that class, but I had gone on to a class with a man named Frank Cosaro, was a great teacher. And um, most of the people were boys and girls from out of town. 
college grads who came to New York to study acting. And uh, that's where I got introduced to literature. And James Toback was the first one who really introduced me yeah. to, um, to Dostoevsky and Goethe. Yeah. I have to go back to Apocalypse Now. Okay. Uh, because I, I don't have any axe to grind with anybody, except I didn't like one thing. The one thing I didn't like was when a book was written about the story and when interviews were given about the story, they said Harvey Keitel was uncomfortable in the jungle. Well, this Marine had spent almost three years of his life in the jungle. And that's an outright lie. That I will state to anybody. Absolutely. Okay. So after, you know, after a lot of the 80s doing interesting stuff, every Lino Wertmuller, uh, uh, Nick Rogue, all Great kinds of stuff director. in the 80s, you and Scorsese, after years of, of uh, not making another movie, you come back with Last Temptation of Christ in 88. And that is the beginning of one of the craziest five-year runs of anybody in this business, five, six-year runs. Because let's just know. I can't wait to hear it. Uh, here we go. <laughs> Last Temptation of Christ in 88 for Scorsese. Thelma and Louise, back with Ridley Scott. And by the way, as we said at the introduction, it's not a coincidence when somebody, a director, wants to reunite with you. It does, it, often they don't, not with you, Harvey, but just generally, right? So that's a, quite a compliment. Back with, back with Ridley Scott as the sympathetic cop in Thelma and Louise all, in 91. Also in 91, Mickey Cohen in Bugsy for Warren Beatty, which Ben Kingsley, just another Lansky reference, Ben Kingsley was Lansky there. You... Got the Oscar nomination, though, let's note. Uh, 92 is both Bad Lieutenant, one of your, you know, most memorable performances is this whacked out lieutenant who's, you know. Abel Ferrara. Abel Ferrara. Again, a person that you would work with multiple times. Sister Act, which was a giant hit, people should remember. And then what I'm going to come to here to ask you to talk about is Reservoir Dogs. And what not everyone realizes is there would be no Reservoir Dogs. There would be no Quentin Tarantino. He might still be working in a video store were it not for Harvey Keitel. And so I wonder if you would just share, forget, I mean, I'd love to hear about playing Mr. White and with all these guys in, in a movie which changed the business. But first of all, how does a guy who was working in a video store, never had made a feature, how does he get Harvey Keitel to be in his movie? A woman colleague of mine from the actor studio called me one day to say, I have a script for you. It was Reservoir Dogs. I read the script, and I was very moved by it. And I called Lawrence Bender, who was the producer, who called Quentin. But first she says, you're lying, you're not Harvey Keitel. <laughs> um, so uh, Quentin came to meet me in L.A. at the time, our shooting. And, uh, well, we met. He knocked on the door, I opened the door, he said... Harvey Keitel? <laughs> it's Keitel, come in. <laughs> um, and um, that's how we met. And um, I asked him, where are you from? He told me, I said, um, uh, uh, was your father someone who was connected in some way, you know, with wise guys? He said, no. I said, uh, any brothers, uh, you know, uncles and that? He said, no. I said, did you hang out with tough guys? He said, no. I said, well, how the fuck did you write the script? <laughs> he said, I worked in video stores. That's the story. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, okay, so Mr. White will just know this is who you're playing. One of the eight guys that are 
dealing with the aftermath of this of this botched robbery. Movie shot in five weeks for one point five million dollars. The other actors are basically nobody at that point. At that point, they obviously proved to be talented actors. I was I, I was advised not to do that movie. By the way, just I bet yeah, just please, for business us. reasons. Yeah. I was doing a Broadway play at the time with George C. Scott, and a very famous actress who was playing his wife said, Harvey, don't reduce your price in Hollywood because Quentin didn't have any money. Um, the movie had no money. And um, my price at that time for movies was in the six figures low. But here I had to do it for like scale, like $25,000, I think. And uh, But I wanted to do this movie. The script moved me so much. And so I did take the cut. But that's part of the deal. Uh, uh, the deal we made made up for it in the long run because the movie was such a hit. You get it on the back end. Um, but these are problems you'll come across, I hope, yeah. and decisions you'll have to make in your lives. And because of that leap of faith in him, I hope you got paid a lot better on Pulp Fiction. <laughs> That's probably two years later, right? I so, don't think so. No? <laughs> so he owes you a third. <laughs> he says he's only got one more one more coming, so he better get on it. Well, well, well... Uh, Arrangements were made through points, and, yeah, but but not cash. And and just if you want to say anything about what makes him, we know what appealed to you. I mean, he's a creative writer, brilliant. Like that's understatement of the year. Is he? A, uh, was he right away a competent director? This is his first time again, first time filmmaker. Yeah, he was. Well, the, well, the script was directed. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, you could uh, in the writing. I could tell it was directed yeah. already. But Quentin had studied acting first with a fellow named Alan Garfield, who was a terrific guy, yeah. real loyal about the work. And Quentin had taken some classes with him. And Quentin just had that, um, you know, that aesthetic force in him. And it seems like an infectious enthusiasm, right? He does seem, he has a lot of energy and a lot of enthusiasm. For yeah, her. and a good appetite. <laughs> he almost ate everything in my refrigerator. <laughs> okay. Well, that's quite a, a one-two punch of, of Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction. I'm going to mention only one more movie before we close on Lansky, because how could I not talk about the piano? This is a movie that... Here's the way the New York Times put it. Quote, Keitel gives the performance of his career as a most unlikely romantic hero, close quote, playing Baines, this boorish, illiterate settler in New Zealand who en embarks on this affair with a mute woman who has a daughter. And there's a lot of things that would suggest this I movie. Swear I I don't think I read that review. Well, we better get, we'll get you, we'll print you yes, a copy. No, but I mean, yeah. this was, this was a, a, a beautiful movie. You were, it was not the first time you were directed by a woman, Jane Campion here. It was actually, you'd done, worked with Lena Wertmuller on Kamara. Brilliant director, see her work. Absolutely, just got an honorary Oscar a year or two ago. Yeah. Um, and Jane Campion is 28 years later, back in the Oscar race herself with uh, The Power of the Dog. But I just have to ask you, this is a movie where you, do not, I mean, obviously Holly Hunter has no dialogue. You have actually very little uh, yourself. It's a lot communicated without words. And I wonder how you like acting in that way. Is there where it's more on physicality, eyes, other things? Um, you're making one mistake. Okay. There are words, but they're not spoken. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. And, and is that a way you... There are desires. Yes. There are currents going through you. Wishes, goals, 
Speaking about goals, <laughs> when the film went to Cannes and they do what they call the round table, journalists come to interview the directors and writers and all that, and there are various tables around which all these, the best journalists in the land are seated. So I come to, I come to my last table, it was like the New York Times uh, or the Washington Post and, you know, there's maybe five, six, seven of them on all these tables. And... Um, First question is, how did you ever come to play a romantic lead for the first time in your career? And there was silence at the table. I said, it isn't the first time. And the journalists looked at each other, back at me, and said, where, when? I said, in acting class. Yeah, 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 yeah. And that was the truth. Hmm. Yeah. And you can see in the movie. <laughs> totally. And I and hope... Awesome. By the way, Jay Campion is one of those people whose work is just, uh, I'm always fond of calling her a witch because, <laughs> because of my close relationship with her. And then I follow up by saying, but she's a good witch, <laughs> the kind you'll find in a fairy tale. And you guys did work together again on Holy Smoke a few years later uh, and, and just bridging again the, the gap between then and now. Everyone from Spike Lee and Clockers in 95 to Wes Anderson movies, Moonrise Kingdom and Grand Budapest Hotel, Youth in 2015, you were excellent in. There is the Czech film, The Painted Bird, which I know more people need to see, but it was excellent. I hope uh, you see it. And, but, and I hope of you course, read the book. The most recent, recent reunion with Scorsese, The Irishman in 2019, and De Niro and the whole crowd, and you guys even brought along Pacino for the first time on that one. <laughs> but... Uh, this brings us to 2021, where you are playing Marlansky, as we've all in this room seen today, but just for listeners, late in his life, dying of lung cancer, maybe looking to unburden himself of certain things, but not wanting them out there while they can still hurt him as he, as he speaks with, a, uh, <laughs> speaks with a, an author played by Sam Worthington. And I guess, you know, I just wonder if you can talk about this is not a it's not the first feature from this filmmaker, Aton Rockaway, but you can maybe talk about who he and his father are and how this connected with you play wanting to play this role. Well, OK, I'll try and go fast. I guess you, <laughs> you must be tired of sitting. First of all, uh, I got a call that Aton Rockefeller wanted to direct me in a movie. I could see the cast register going like this. <laughs> Rock, I got a Rockefeller. Rockefeller. <laughs> then I met him. I looked closer at the script. His name was Rockaway. <laughs> there went the money. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> that, that, that happened. Um, well, Aiton's father is a well-respected professor in Israel who interviewed Maya Lansky in the real life. And... Um, Eitan is Israeli. He graduated after being thrown out of about three colleges in Israel. <laughs> he graduated, graduated at the top of his class from NYU. He wanted to be a filmmaker. He had that drive that Israelis have. And um, I'm a child of immigrants. You all know what's going on with immigrants today. Lansky, that he wrote, was an immigrant settled on the Lower East Side, his family. They were poor people. They didn't have money. My people settled on the East Side, Lower East Side. didn't have money. They were poor. In uh, Poland, I think it's Poland that Maya was from, 
he had witnessed his his uncle getting his arm chopped off by Cossacks when they raided the village, the shtetl, thing, things like that. And Maya turns out turns out to be this brilliant fellow, you know, with with an extraordinary mind. Jewish kid beats Lucky Luciano. They um, become the most notorious gangsters and killers, murderers of their time. But Meyer also got married. He also had children. One child was challenged and died in his bed, never to get out of his bed. Meyer took care of him his whole life, and here was a murderer who organized crime. What if he had had an education coming to America as an immigrant? But they didn't. Things weren't set up that way like they're not today. You see what's going on. You know what's going on with the immigrant problem. I don't want to make this statement like it's all-knowing, all but education, education, education. People who don't have opportunities through education are going to have a rough time of it like the like they are on the border now with Poland and uh, Belarus. And the ones that came by sea and died drowning with their children. I, I, want, I want to get people, myself included, I mean, I am included, to understand that these people who are gangsters and monsters and this and that, large corporations, whatnot, they are people. They are people like we are. How they got to be these monsters and villains and whatnot, takes a looking into who of us has had monstrous thoughts but didn't carry them out. We're allowed to have them as long as we don't carry them out. <laughs> so when Eitan brought me Lansky, I was taken by that journey that Maya had and his family when they came to America. And the fact that this little boy turned out to be this great organizer, have this great mind to organize the way, the way he did and give thousands of jobs to people and yet be a gangster in the bad sense. I will just note to end our uh, portion of this conversation on a, on a funny note, I think. Everyone, I think there are a lot of people out there who think Harvey Keitel must be Italian because he's all in all these, you know. It's, so here, finally, at 82, you get to play a Jewish gangster. <laughs> I'm by misfit. Yeah. <laughs> And we had a Christmas tree. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, thank you ah. so much. <laughs> thank you for this portion. And we are going to immediately turn this over to the students. And our first question is going to come from Anthony Post. Hi, Mr. Keitel. Thank you for being with us here this afternoon. You're welcome. Um, I'm interested because you've played a lot of very uh, interesting characters with strong moral centers, yet a lot of them also have a very violent side of them. And how, as an actor, you're able to balance a lot of these complex characters and if there's a favorite of yours from your career. That's exactly why I'm an actor. And why you are starting to be what? Uh, I, film studies major. Well, you can answer that question as well as I can. You have those thoughts. You have an imagination. You don't commit those things, but they're in you. That separates the men from the boys, sort of, in my book. Those who can live with them, create from them, and bring goodness. But to know it, you have to open your mind to it. Let's go to Molly Rose Freeman. 
Thank you so much for being here. My question is, I'm currently a screenwriting major, so I'm sort of trying to figure out what kind of stories I want to tell. And I know that you've done a lot of work in both studio films and more independent films. So my question is, like, what's the difference for you between those two things? And which do you prefer if you have a preference? Good question. Absolutely enjoy them both. The difference is... I always think, think of Hollywood as a place that needs reform. Hollywood doesn't need to be destroyed. It's a great institution, if you will. What it needs is to meet people like yourself who ask questions like that. Because this movie you saw is not a $5 million movie or a $50 million movie or a $75, $100, million, $150 million movie. It was done for a couple of million dollars. And the movies that Scott told you about were done for in the thousands of dollars, some of them. And that's where Hollywood needs reform. For me, the student execs, don't spread this word, (laughs) and people who work there should be in class with all of you, examining their own hearts and minds. They get paid a lot of money. And all of us are attracted to money in one way or another. But how much do you need? It's good to open the door to the talent that's around and see and hear what they're thinking, listening to. You get, you, you get my point, don't you? Dimitri Keo. You've worked with, as you guys have talked about, so many great directors. And I was wondering, have you yourself ever thought to direct a film? Yeah, sure, I have, and, and, uh, but, but the opportunities, um, I wasn't ready when I was asked because I was um, trying to become the actor I wanted to become. But um, that's a good idea for all actors to study direction and be capable of directing. Otherwise, you're always waiting around for that job. And um, I know you actors got great stories to tell. I do, but I just didn't develop them. But... War game's not over yet. Yeah. <laughs> Fat lady didn't sing. <laughs> and, and Harvey, you, you've said, I think that uh, in reference to Tarantino, right? Like it's not a bad thing for a director to study acting either. <laughs> they better know how to work with actors. All, all directors should study acting. All of you. Read Kazan's book. Read Cassavetes and, and Harold Klerman and Stella Adler. You must, I mean, that's your... That's your boyfriend, that's your girlfriend (laughs) when you go to work. Kayla Spencer. Thank you so much for being here today. You guys talked a lot about how you worked with multiple directors many times. So I was wondering how working with those directors many times has aided your process, your acting process, if there's any directing techniques that you particularly take to. You know, that's a great question, which goes to the heart of being a person because I have no one answer for it. It's making egg creams and uh, stealing pigeons and, and being lonely Saturday night. <laughs> have you ever been lonely Saturday night? <laughs> it's all part of the equation, yeah. All part of the equation, our, our collective equation. And there were a lot of snobs in Hollywood and a lot of very good people also as well. But make no mistake about it. All of them are not your friends. You got to be a friend. Mm-hmm. 
Emma Koss, close us out. Hi, Mr. Keitel. Thank you so much for being here. So as we've heard, you've worked with a lot of directors for the first time in the 70s with a very particular look to those movies. And I was just curious, is there anything that you noticed in those young directors or filmmakers that you wish um, newer filmmakers today would have or you'd like to see more of? Yes. Yes, but I don't know if I can articulate that. Um, there seems to be a, a desire for shortcuts, you know, and, uh, and uh, I don't know about shortcuts because I, uh, I took the authentic journey, you know, theater off, off Broadway in New York and then off Broadway, then Broadway, then Hollywood. I'm not saying everyone has to do that. But in terms of the work itself is what I mean to say. You have to do that. You have to become that authentic person that you want your work to be. And unless you struggle to become it, your work won't be it. And also, you might get sucked under by the jingle jangle of the cash register. I wasn't wealthy. I wasn't, uh, I didn't have money. I was broke lots of times. That's no fun. It's a, it's a journey, as if you're going on a hike. You gather all those tools you need to survive on that hike. Making it as a director, writer, a designer, whatever, is no different than that. When Quentin Tarantino knocked on my door, he, uh, he was working in a video store. I think uh, it's, it's not a coincidence that when people, you know, you, you've just mentioned you, you've been broke at different times, but there's not, you, we can look through your filmography and there's, unlike most people, there is not a glaring paycheck <laughs> movie among them. This is a true actor's actor and it's a privilege to have you with us. And I can't thank you enough for taking the time. Harvey Keitel, everybody. Thank you. Good luck. Thanks very much for tuning in to Awards Chatter. We really appreciate you taking the time to do that and would really appreciate you taking a minute more to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or your podcast app and to leave us a rating as well. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me via Twitter at twitter.com slash Scott Feinberg. Until next time, thanks for joining us.